HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Eat Your Heartland Out with me, your host and tour guide, Capri Cafaro. On our show this hour, we're highlighting the culinary diversity of the Midwest. As we've discussed a lot on this program, the Midwest is not ethnically homogeneous. As a matter of fact, it's quite the opposite. And today's guests reflect the diverse population and palate of the heartland. We speak to Jackie Navarrete, the manager of Mi Favorita Grocery, a family business catering to the needs of the Latino community and inspiring the greater Holland, Michigan area to share and enjoying the food that they serve. Johnny Rodriguez, the executive director of Latin Americans United for Progress in Holland, joins the conversation as well. But first, we welcome Jennifer Gunji Balasrud and Alex Santowski, founding partners of Suzu Japanese Bakery in Champlain, Illinois. Jennifer, you have an interesting uh, backstory and one that leads directly to Suzu, this wonderful bakery, uh, as I said, located in Champlain, Illinois, which I believe is a college town. So share a little bit with our audience about your background and uh, how your road led to this bakery. I was actually born and raised in Champaign, Illinois, so I am a true townie and uh, ended up going to the University of Illinois and then kind of leaving and then coming back and was teaching at the university. And also um, at that same time, my mother, who was one of the originators of a organization on campus at the University of Illinois, the Japan House, uh, was the director at the time. And she opened up a new Japan house, even though Japan house was a part of our campus since the, since the mid sixties. Um, and this new Japan house, she had invited me to come and teach there and share Japanese aesthetic practices. And I've always also studied the Japanese way of tea, which is central mm. to that of Japan house. And that's where really kind of the heart and soul of Suzu's kind of came to, to life also. But um, I uh, taught under her and worked with her for many years, and then she retired about 11 years ago. And then since then, I've taken over and um, as director. And one of the things that I wanted to do was expand our audience and interest in Japanese culture. And I think that um, food is the way to do it. I'm a food lover, especially of Japanese foods. And um, every summer of my life, since I was a baby, I would go to Japan and stay for the entire summer with my grandparents and enjoy Japanese cuisine on all levels. And um, one of the things that I thought was sorely missing in our community was some authentic Japanese uh, wagashi, which is Japanese sweets, and then also Japanese baked goods, because they're quite unique um, to that of the Japanese culture. And some of the flavor profiles that I thought uh, was um, that could be introduced. And I, I feel like we live in a university town, as you stated, and uh, we have a lot of really interesting individuals that have a strong and deep and sincere uh, curiosity about culture in general. So we have been very fortunate to have that support of the community here in uh, Champaign. 
Well, I can imagine university towns are definitely ripe for that sort of thing. But, um, you know, it just to, again, to give a little bit more context, Japan House, as I think you pretty much described, it's kind of a cultural center. You are obviously, you're, you're Japanese American. You draw from your own personal experiences, um, and your own culinary experiences. Um, and that has obviously informed, um, sort of the, the founding of Suzu. Um, you mentioned specific flavor profiles and ingredients. Um, and I know you're not the only one that is involved in this endeavor. So, um, I, I know we have Alex with us, who is one of the head bakers and partners. Uh, I want to bring Alex in. Um, and, and Alex, maybe you can, can share, uh, a bit about how you came to the table, literally and figuratively, um, and, uh, how long you've been associated with Suzu. Yes. So my mother actually was teaching in Florida at the time and she got a job at the university when she was pregnant with me. So she moved here to start teaching graphic design and new media at the time. Uh, I was born and then I've kind of just been here ever since also. In so we have two townies. So we have two yes. townies yeah. uh, sharing <laughs> the the culture of, of uh, Japanese um, sweets. What's the word again? Wagashi. Wagashi, okay. Yes, and so it wasn't until uh, high school, uh, my freshman year, we had a Japanese exchange student stay with us, and I was never exposed to Japanese culture before or any other, yes, cultures uh, in such a close proximity, and even her being from Japan has never actually experienced a tea ceremony because it's such a difficult thing to get to in Japan, and it's very... Mm -hmm small numbers and it's uh, kind of expensive or more of a luxury. So when she first moved to Champagne, uh, we figured we'd take her to Japan house to see something that's a little more traditional since she's never been out of America also. And so that was my first experience going there. And with her, we both experienced a tea ceremony for the first time. And so while she was here, she actually was a ballerina, but then I was interested so much in it that I just kind of continued going each week to the, community class learning tea ceremony, uh, learning about sweets, wagashi making, and this kind of continued that ever since I was 14 years old. And and can I ask how many years that's been? Well, uh, 30, I'm 31 now, so uh, 16 years, I guess. This is the 16th <laughs> year now I've been studying under Jennifer and her mother, Gunji Sensei. Well, that's uh, it sounds like an incredible place, and I can't believe that you know there's that opportunity to you know, learn these, you know, not those, these traditional, um, ways of, of making, uh, pastries as, as well as the tea ceremony. I mean, that has to be an incredible resource, um, you know, for a community to have such a, a diverse, uh, and unique, um, you know, cultural, uh, outlet, uh, for them. So, I, I mean, you, you got very lucky, Alex, that, you know, you were, you, had an interest in one that you were also able to nurture uh, because of the resource of the Japan house. So fast forward um, from, you know, I guess, you know, 16 years uh, or maybe a little bit less, um, Suzu comes to be. Jennifer, how did Suzu actually, um, you know, uh, plant its roots? We know kind of where the inspiration came from, but when did it start and how did it start? So it started in November of 2020. I think that's right. Yeah. I, I get lost in, in the pandemic years. I know. So, it's all one year. Exactly. So 2020, we opened our doors and we had been uh, renovating a former bakery during that time. But it was it was a really difficult time, whether we should open, whether we should not open. And even just kind of doing the building of building out of this space was difficult because a lot of people weren't working, etc. But we finally, um, I'm a person of wanting to really share joy in any way possible. And I really do believe that food shares joy. And I felt like our community was so down and so isolated from one another that I just wanted to open. And um, thank goodness for Alex and his drive and his willingness to deal with my enthusiasm for this bakery. Um, but we opened uh, in the middle of the pandemic and it was truly a success. And um, one of the things that I, I, I kind of want to go back to the Japan house a little bit about that is that 
we were so driven to make sweets and wagashi because there was no access to them here in champagne urbana there was you couldn't go to a you know traditional japanese sweet store and get these sweets and in tea ceremony you always consume wagashi or japanese sweet prior to drinking tea and it's a critical component because it's the harmonization of the flavor of something sweet with that of the bitterness of matcha and so we trained ourselves and we learned under different professors who actually went to Japan and mm. learned under um, uh, little sweet shop owners and such and got access to that information. And then they brought it back. And then we had to start to develop our own recipes. And, um, and that's what we kind of drew from and brought to Suze's. And luckily, Alex had interest in cooking during that time period. And so he started to learn how to do sweet making also because of his enthusiasm for that. And, and so that's what we brought to Suze's too. How do we take some of these Japanese flavor profiles and wagashi ideas and Japanese baked good ideas and make it accessible to this community through the resources that we have here? We do import a lot of things but mm. from Japan, but we also try to make um, make it happen with local goods and um, items that we can get here too. That I, you have described this so well. I think we can all transport ourselves right into the bakery and, and get a sense of, uh, you know, where the where the heart comes from in all of this, and and the approach that you're utilizing, uh, and how you're trying to blend those different cultures and flavors together. This is Eat Your Heartland Al. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Welcome back to Eat Your Heartland Out. This hour, we're spotlighting diverse flavors of the Midwest. We've been speaking with the founders of Suzu, a Japanese bakery in Champlain, Illinois. Let's welcome them back. Alex, give us some examples of um, the type of things that you make um, and, and really, you know, the more descriptive, the better. I always say this is radio, so we want to we be able to imagine and smell and taste it, even though we can't do any of that. So I know a lot of... Uh, traditional Japanese uh, desserts and sweets might be a little foreign to people in the Midwest. Like people still don't know what mochi is or matcha, which is the fine ground uh, green tea. Mm. So sometimes uh, those ingredients, I think, throw people off and they don't understand or don't recognize any of the names. So one of the first things I worked on was uh, a miso brownie. That was because, especially in the Midwest, that's a very standard thing. Everyone knows what a brownie is, but in Japan, they don't have brownies. They don't make pies. There's the things that are very common here, they don't do right now. It's a very strong French and European influence in their desserts. So I knew, like, everyone would know what a brownie is. You know the flavor of that. And then by adding miso instead of salt or typically like salted caramel or anything, you have that extra flavor, that richness of the miso, depending on which type you use, a white miso or red miso. And then mixing that in with the chocolate, it becomes savory but still very sweet and you're wanting it as a dessert so it's not salty at all like it's not a uh, a savory dish but you get that little mix of japanese flavor in with something you already know so it's more recognizable sure uh what i'm curious what is the difference between red wheat miso and white miso so it's a very subtle uh color wise of course it gets a little darker if you're ever making soup with it but white miso is actually there's less salt in it. It becomes a little sweeter and mm -hmm. it's a mild flavor where like, as you get darker and miso flavors, 
it becomes, uh, I don't know, just rich. Like, I don't want to say earthier, but there's just like a, a stronger flavor to it, a little more fermented. So cooking, we try to stay mostly with the white misos just because they don't overpower anything or any flavors too much. But chocolate's nice because uh, it's kind of hard to overpower that, even with the miso. And so I know our blondies, that's where the miso flavor comes out a lot more. And once it's mixed in, it almost tastes like a, yeah, like a kind of a nicely uh, caramelized caramel, like a really dark flavored caramel without having to actually add any caramel. Miso flavor comes out a lot more. I bet. And once it's mixed in, it almost tastes like a, yeah, like a kind of a nicely uh, caramelized caramel, like a really dark flavored caramel without having to actually add any caramel or anything. Yeah. It. Sounds like it could taste a bit like a salted caramel or maybe even a chocolate covered pretzel. When you talk about the miso brownie, those, that sweet and savory um, is, is definitely um, I think captured. Um, I, I want to bring Jennifer back in for a second, because I recall when we had a chance to to speak prior to this interview, you mentioned how um a lot of uh, Japanese menus are seasonally based and that, that at Suzu, you try to also follow the Japanese calendar um, as far as, you know, what you bring into the different baked goods contingent upon the season. Uh, what are some examples of how, how that functions and, and how you are able to change your menu with the seasons and how, frankly, that mirrors you know, maybe the more traditional Japanese seasonal cuisines? Yes. I mean, Japanese food is very much so um, focused on season, seasonality. And so if you go to Japan and you go to a particular restaurant and it's fall, that's the menu that you get because that's what they can get in their hands. It's the type of fish that they can get. It's the type of vegetables that they can get. And then in wintertime, it changes in the spring and summer. So it's always a rotational menu when you go to some of these specialty restaurants and such. And um, so I wanted to try to follow that because in tea suites, we do the same thing in wagashi making. We try to make it as seasonal as possible. One of the rules of tea is to reflect the seasons. And we have to think about that in everything that we do from the tea equipment that we select to the images that might be on the bowl to our kimonos and then definitely to the sweets that we serve. And so I wanted to uh, bring that to Suzu's also. And so we opened in November. And so one of the things that we brought um, to the table was kabocha, which is a Japanese pumpkin squash. And um, we utilized that. And it, it seemed very appropriate for the Midwest too, because people are accustomed to pumpkin and that kind of idea um, for Thanksgiving time and such, and just kind of off the tail end of Halloween maybe. And so that was actually a really huge success. And that kind of encouraged me to think that, oh, we can do this and we can try to be seasonal as possible. However, there are some disparities, right, in terms of what we can get and what's what's readily available here in Illinois versus what is seasonal in Japan. So we had sure. to kind of straddle that a little bit. But something that was really wildly successful, which I was surprised by but loved, um, was that in March, um, March, April, we started to introduce cherry blossom season. And so cherry blossom doesn't mean like the typical uh, Midwest cherry, but um, more so uh, we were using cherry blossom uh, tree leaves that are pickled um, or salted. And um, you use them in sweet making, um, typically to wrap a mochi or something like that. So you, again, like Alex was saying, that balance between sweet and savory, it's not over the top pickled, but it has this kind of just nice light saltiness that actually heightens the sweetness of whatever you're consuming. But Alex actually was the one that developed the cherry uh, leaf, um, cherry blossom cake, that uh, the roll cake that was hugely successful. And I think that people are um, aching for it to come back this spring. Alex, do you want to talk a little bit more about that particular recipe? I was, I wrote cherry blossom leaves were like one of the first things I ever had uh, as a wagashi, where something so different, where you're eating an entire leaf that's just wrapped around something. But I thought it was just so good because it's, again, that light, salty, not vinegary flavor. It's just kind of 
a preserved leaf around something so sweet. And then you have that nice fragrant aroma of the cherry without it being overpowering, like typically any cherry medicine or something is like, this is a very different cherry flavor when you actually get to uh, consume it. So when I was in Japan, I bought a lot of packs of them and I brought them home and I wanted to try and experiment with them. So I thought if people saw an entire leaf, they might be put off a bit by that because it's uh, a large leaf. And so we cut them up really small, put them into a chiffon cake, then use that to really infuse the flavor into it and then kind of hid the leaf inside. So when people ate it, they still got that really effervescent, salty, uh, and light cherry flavor, but it was still very sweet. And it was nice because we had a limited amount. So it was kind of nice to see that people came for it very quickly and we ran out. So hopefully this year we'll be able to plan ahead accordingly. Well, I, I have to say I am totally surprised by by the what you've described um, as far as the cherry blossom flavor because I would have assumed it was more fragrant, I guess. And what you're describing is a little bit more uh, of, of a savory, you know, sort of rich, uh, as you, salty type of, of flavor. And, and I would have never guessed that. I would have assumed that it was some sort of like – for lack of a better term, like lavender infused, again, fragrant rose water type of thing, but it doesn't sound like that at all. Yes, it's a much uh, subtler flavor. I know if you ever have like a cherry blossom Mm. tea, though, that kind of hits you in the nose a lot more and you kind of get... And that really brings up a really good point, Alex. One thing that we should note is that everything about Japanese sweets and confections um, and baked goods are, they're a lot less sweet. We keep using the word sweet because that's the best translation for Japanese wagashi, but it is not the same sugar level or the sweetness level sometimes where I say that my teeth feel itchy when I'm eating something too sweet. (laughs) Um, But um, Japanese sweets are very mild in flavor and fragrance. And so that's when he was bringing that up and you were bringing that up, Capri. It's so interesting because we try not to add a lot of fragrant um, elements to our foods because if we go back to the rules of tea, if you have something that's overly powerful in the in smell, um, it, it overtakes what you're trying to do with the tea. So mm. there's always this really fine balance of, what is sweet and how can we heighten that sweetness with a little bit of salt, something salty, and then keep the smell of the fragrance as, as minimal as possible so that we're really eating it because of the texture and um, the, uh, and the, this, well, here we go again, the sweetness of it so that you're really picking up on all of the small nuances. Another really good example of this is the red bean. So we use I red bean. I was actually paste. going to ask about red bean. I'm so you t- literally took that out of my head. <laughs> that's, that's a really critical ingredient in sweets, Japanese sweets, um, especially wagashi. And so it's, it's kind of just the standard. And most people are not so excited that are not familiar with it to think, oh, I'm going to eat something sweet and it has red bean in it. They don't think of it as a sweet. But Alex makes a wonderful, um, what we call ankle. So that's how you, it's the red bean paste is called ankle. And he um, makes it a tsubu-an, which is he actually leaves kind of the skin on the on the bean a little bit. And so that there is a textural quality to it. Or you can completely eliminate the skin and make it very smooth. It really depends on the type of sweet that you're consuming. And that little difference of texture versus non-texture is what I'm talking about in terms Mm -hmm. of when I say texture. It's not like, this is super crunchy and this is super soft. It's not that. It's all of the subtleties. And that's the wonderful thing about the Japanese cuisine is that it's about you focusing and being mindful of all of the small details and enjoying those details so that when you do eat something, you really do taste, oh, this is a fresh strawberry. And it's not being covered up by a lot of sugar or um, a, a lot of other things that I can't, I can no longer, I can just taste sweet and I no longer can taste that this is a strawberry or this is red bean or this is a mochi, this is whatever it might be that we're sharing with, with the audience. It's really critical for that balance. Well, and it sounds that, that ultimately like Suzu is, is, 
you know, shows the, the power of mentorship, the power of community and the power of food. Um, I really am pleased both of you, uh, Jennifer and Alex for joining us today and for sharing, uh, the delicious story of Suzu with our audience. We were just speaking with the founders of Suzu, a Japanese bakery in Champlain, Illinois. But now we welcome two guests from Holland, Michigan, to discuss the traditions of the Latino community in that region. Jackie Navarrete is the manager of Mi Favorita Grocery, and Johnny Rodriguez is the executive director of Latin Americans for Progress. Johnny and Jackie, we're so happy to have you both on the program. Thank you for joining us. Johnny, actually, I want to start with you. Um, please give our audience uh, a bit of a, an understanding, paint a picture of the Latino community in Holland, Michigan. How did uh, you know immigrants come and choose Holland, Michigan as a place to live? And why did they stay? Yeah, uh, first of all, thank you for, for having me on. Um, you know, to, to learn more about the Latino community and the presence here in Holland, Michigan, uh, we, we have to go back. And uh, I think many people would be surprised to know that um, shortly after Holland was founded uh, in 1847 by a pastor, a Dutch immigrant, uh, A.C. Van Rolte, um, the Latino presence uh, was was followed up shortly after that, um, mm-hmm. late 1800s, um, in the fields. Um, you know, there wasn't enough uh, workers to to work in the field, and you know, as as early as 1923, there's there's newspaper articles about uh, three carloads of Mexicans that came to Holland as migrant workers. Mm. Um, so the the wave of of Latino immigration and, and presence uh, began, you know, as far as uh, late 1800s, early ni- 1920s, and um, you know, a lot of it was uh, for work. Um, you know, looking for uh, a better opportunity, an opportunity to advance and provide for families. Uh, very much the same things that. Everybody wants right, great jobs, good home, uh, good schools. Uh, so that that is why they came, and in the forties, um, really started to settle down uh, with a program that was called the Bracero program. That would it was an agreement between the United States and Mexican governments hmm. um, that actually um, you know uh, allowed uh, Mexican immigrants uh, to come up to Holland, Michigan, for work, an emergency program. And then um, continuing on there, uh, the Latinos uh, started to, to stay. And uh, I think uh, in the late 40s, um, the Heinz Pickle Manufacturing uh, yeah. Company and factory right here in Holland um, had, a, had a large population of, of uh, Mexican uh, immigrants uh, and, uh, you know, really started to, to sense the presence of, of the Latinos uh, settling down here in the Holland area. So that's that's you know that's a little bit of the history and, and why they stayed and, and currently we're why we're here. Well, I find this interesting, uh, you know, because uh, the story that you've told is one, as you mentioned, of you know many immigrant groups that have come to the United States and particularly you know in the Midwest that have uh, were seeking out those economic opportunities. You know, many of whom, like you know, I, I think of my own Italian and Ukrainian roots of uh, coming actually to the United States in a similar period of time in the late, you know, 1800s and early 1900s for opportunity in, in the still mills. Um, but, you know, the, the, the story that you're telling is actually, you know, much more connected to the food we eat and what gets put on our table and the, um, the, the very important and integral role that uh, Latino immigrants play in uh, in doing just that, not just in, in Holland, Michigan, but but certainly we recognize all across the United States. Um, you know, uh, you just talked about the fields, you know, I, blueberries, strawberries, those sort of things, and then and then Heinz uh, Heinz food as well. Um, so, what what does the community look like now? Uh, when you fast forward, you talk about the 1940s, people planting down roots, you know, kind of transitioning, um, you know, or at least some of the community, um, you know, on the factory floor, so to speak, and, and at Heinz. Um, but, you know, let's fast forward now into the 21st century. Uh, what does the Latino community look like now in Holland, Michigan? 
Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, you know, when we look at the numbers nationally, Latinos make up roughly around 19 percent. Uh, but right here in uh, Ottawa County, in the city of Holland, uh, in West Michigan, uh, Latinos make up almost 30 percent of the population just in this city. Mm. And it's it really interesting to have this pocket of Latino presence in a county that that's not very diverse outside of uh, the Holland area. Um, so, uh, and we're continuing to grow. We're projected to grow over the next five years. And you're exactly right. It, it's not only Mexican uh, immigrants, Mexican-Americans, Tejanos, Chicanos. Uh, you know, we're seeing a growth in Puerto Rican population, Cuban, uh, Salvadorian, Colombian, um, really just many nationalities in the, in the Latino uh, population that, um, you know, is, is very wide. Yeah, well, and, and so, you know, I, I want to bring in actually Jackie um, to tell us about, uh, tell us, Jackie, about your experience, your family. You, your family, um, I understand, uh, owns and operates a grocery called uh, Mi Favorita and in Holland. And as Johnny just said, I mean, there's a significant Latina population there. Uh, 30% is, is very sizable, at least in the city of Holland. So there has to be quite a bit of demand from the Latino population for, you know, food and goods that, that they, you know, that all of you are looking to, to utilize, um, in, in your daily lives. But I'm sure, you know, others in the Holland community also want to seek out specialty groceries. So tell us about, uh, your family's journey, um, to Holland and, and your business. Yeah, yeah, of course. First off, um, you know, thank you for having me. Um, yeah, Mi Favorita was actually established in 1995 by our uh, grandfather, um, Juan Navarrete, who was in, um, also immigrated here from Mexico, um, you know, seeking a better a better life and a better opportunity. Um, in the store, we, it's, we've definitely grown a lot throughout the years. I think as more and more Latinos come into the community, we see an increase in demand. Um, we also have food. Um, so it's actually, um, it's, it's really interesting to see how everything has changed because we not only attract the Hispanic community, but we also attract all types of nationalities. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, uh, people, want to try food and they want to try the different types of varieties or even make their own things, you know, and we have a lot of those products, um, you know, to be able to make stuff from home or try new recipes. Uh, we have an on-demand kitchen that has, you know, like tacos, tortas, stuff like that. And everyone's interested. Everybody, I think it's because, you know, it's the, the community has, it's small, but yet it's, it's, it's got a very good diversity to where it's, it's interesting, you know, like Johnny was saying, there's more Cubans coming, there's more people from Colombia, there's people from Puerto Rico, Nicaragua is, you know, so it's, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it. I mean, I, I love to hear stories about how, um, you know, people from all walks of life, and all nationalities and backgrounds are coming to, you know, check out what you have to sell. And it's not just necessarily the Latino community. Again, I, I always draw upon, you know, my, my Italian heritage and the place I come from in Ohio is very, very heavily populated with Italian Americans. And so there's all kinds of specialty groceries, but everybody goes because they, you know, it, it becomes part of people's, you know, diets and things they look forward to, even if that's not their cultural heritage, it's something that they can appreciate. And so, and, and I think food is a way where people learn about other cultures as well. And so I'm sure that's, that is the case, you know, uh, there in Holland, Michigan too. So what, what kind of things do you, do you sell, um, you know, both on sort of the, the, I guess, ready food side, as well as in the grocery. Uh, and then I have, and then I have another follow-up question for you after you tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, we were the first ethnic store in Holland, Michigan. Um, when we first started out, we just sold products. Uh, we've got like tortillas, chips. Um, the The amount of inventory has grown to where we now have like um, dough to make empanadas. Uh, we oh, have wow. gandules. We have fresh produce. Um, when it comes to ready-to-go food, um, we have our, our menu, which has tacos, tortas, bur burritos, 
But then my mom is always in the kitchen bringing something different out. So lately we've been having like homemade mole with mole sauce that's homemade. My mom is amazing at cooking along with the rest of the oh, ladies wow. at the store. Um, costillas de res and the puerco con salsa, which is really good. It's kind of spicy, but... You know, so, people, so for people. people that aren't people that aren't familiar with these things, can you describe what they are? Since it's radio, people can't hear, yeah. it, they can't see it, they can't smell it, they can't taste it, and they might not necessarily be familiar with the dishes that you're discussing. So, give us yeah. a little bit more detail. Yeah, so we'll start really quick with one that's really that gets questioned a lot, and it's a torta. I like to call it kind of like the Hispanic uh, cheeseburger without the cheese <laughs> sometimes. But it's this huge sandwich, and it comes loaded with beans, tomatoes, le- uh, lettuce, aguacate, um, then your choice of meat, and some jalapenos to give it a little kick. Um, mm. Mole is actually a very traditional um, dish. It, do- it, do- it depends on the preference. It's usually made with um, chocolate, uh, chile guajillo, and some chicken broth. Mm-hmm. It's got about 26 ingredients just that's just to name a few yikes Um, yeah it's a lot but it's very good um it's it pretty much the chicken comes drowned in it and you just eat it with some rice the costillas de puerco they're pretty much in english they're called uh short ribs pork short ribs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they're pretty much cooked to to where they're nice and i don't want to say uh crunchy but maybe a little bit tender and then mm-hmm. they just make so they make fresh salsa with some tomatillos, jalapenos, cebolla, and um, garlic, and they blend that up and throw it in, and it's pretty much gets you you serve it with a with some rice, and the rice mm-hmm. just soaks up the chili, and it's it's very good. Oh yeah, this sounds sounds incredible. Um, you mentioned your mom. Um, and you know, we, we said it's a, it's a family business. Your grand, your grandfather started it. Who was all, who in your family is, is working there? Um, and uh, you know, how do they, how do you share your traditions with, um, you know, with your customers? Yeah, that's a really good, good, good question. So, um, currently working there is, uh, my parents. So my mother and my father, um, Irene and Mario Navarrete, then it's, um, me, I help them out. I'm like their secretary. I, I do all the other stuff. And then also we have my sister who has just started coming back on. Uh, the business keeps growing. And right now we, we're in demand of family. <laughs> so my sister <laughs> actually helps out too. I've got my kids actually that are starting to put a, you know, lend a hand to start getting into the business and learning, you know, firsthand what work, work ethic is. Um, yeah. Uh, how we hold well, the community we're a small business. Uh, the community knows exactly where to come. Um, we sponsor local local teams. We sponsor events. We're really involved with the community, especially with the Latinos. And so, um, we we can pretty much we're kind of like a resource when somebody you know new 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 people that come into the area. Um, we have a, a we 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 deeply feel that. Um, Mi favorita is our way of serving the community. Mm-hmm. So even if it's like with a sample of food or some, you know, if a free bag of tacos or even just a hug, uh, we're Aww. always there to make sure that we can serve the community in whatever way we can. The, uh, the, I, that's incredible. And I think that we see that a lot with, you know, immigrant communities. But at this point, I mean, you know, obviously your family is very well established in the community. You have n- a number of generations um, and of, you know, a variety of Latino groups had, had come to Holland, Michigan, as we said, you know, a century ago, basically. Yeah. So there are four or five generations of, of families that are there, um, that identify, I guess, as Latino. And then, but at the same time, you have new folks coming in, you know, from, from Cuba and from Puerto Rico and, and other places, as you mentioned. Has that changed what you, what you stock, um, at all, um, as different, you know, um, immigrant communities from different countries come in, um, does that create a variation in demand and maybe bringing in some different types of foods to serve these newer immigrant communities? Yes, yes, it does. Um, uh, we get a lot of requests for, you know, ingredients that we've never really even heard of before. And it comes to, you know, we we do try to to cater to, to the, new, the new groups that are coming in. And not only that, though, but you know, 
just all around. I, um, in the kitchen too, we've, we have actually started to get some new, I got new employees that are Cuban and they love to put in their input and, you know, it's, it's a fun place to be at. So we like creating new things and trying to figure out, you know, what can we, if we all put together, you know, what can we learn from them? Um, but yeah, no, definitely. We, we, it, it, it's our, our inventory has, has gone up in, in even ingredients that I've never heard of before. And I bring them home just to see if I can try them out. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I've already can, burned can a couple you- tostones. Oh, yeah. Can, yeah. Give me some examples of things that you've tried out that you've maybe never heard of just to, you know, see what's what it's all about and how uh, how it turned out. Yeah. So one of them was um, more more plantains uh, for tostones. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not too good at them. So tostones is pretty much a plantain and you have to squish it. Uh, they so they use. Uh, well, they told me to use a, a can. So you put a, a bag on the can and you squish the plantain and then you have to fry it. Mm. Um, and that's really good served with mayonnaise and ketchup mixed together. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is, um, we've been getting a lot of requests for corn flour, mm. corn flour. Yes. I'm not quite sure what they use it for, but I've seen a lot of recipes that you can still make tortillas out of them. So, uh, flour tortillas yeah. without yeah. the flour. So a little bit more of a gluten-free option. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. And that's different than cornmeal. It is. What's the difference? I think it's just the color. I've got no. I know I've got some some that's yellow, and then some that's white. But I think cornmeal is a little bit more. Yeah, different. I think it's it's more coarse. Cornmeal is more coarse. Yeah. Well, I I love the fact that you know you're you're trying these things at home, and now I want to go get plantains and uh, you know smush them with a can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Let me know if they turn out better than mine. Well, I you know I'll I will certainly let you know. Uh, I'm sure there'll be a crowd pleaser. I, honestly, yeah. I love plant I love plantains. I'll be sad if like my smush plantains don't work out very well. But well, they keep telling me that there's a sandwich made with plantains, so you have to. Do you eat them with ketchup? I I was taught to make it with ketchup and mayonnaise mixed together. Mayu ketchup. Mayu ketchup, that's the word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it actually is very good. It's very tasty. I actually seen it on the on the Food Network. A, a, um, a chef actually used it in in her in her dish, and she won. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, you sound like you're familiar with this. Um, you know, uh, what do you have any specific food traditions that in your family that um, you know, or your immediate community that that you know you always try to incorporate or honor? Um, you know, in uh, special occasions or even on a daily basis? Yeah. So um, what's interesting now is my wife is Puerto Rican. So, um, you know, that, you know, arroz con habichuelas and, and plantains and mayuquechu, like that's that's stuff that I've picked up as well. <laughs> and and you and you are Mexican-American, is that right? Uh, yep. I am Mexican-American. Um, and yeah, just growing up, um, you know, we were migrant workers, my family was, and we settled in Holland. But prior to that, we were in Kalamazoo, which is an hour south, uh, Benton Harbor, uh, mm-hmm. which is like 45 minutes south, Waterville, these little towns. Um, and there's just a wide variety. So for me and my my family, we've, we've always had, you know, the traditional um, barbacoa, menudo, like on Sundays mm-hmm. and, and those stuff. Yeah, but then you know we've always yeah, again. Had, can can you can you describe these things for folks that aren't familiar? Oh yes, yeah. so uh, barbacoa is uh, cheek meat, so cow cheek uh, beef essentially, but uh, the cheek of the cow, and um, menudo's uh, stomach lining. So um, it's it's not for the faint of heart, but it is very delicious. Yeah, I think I think it's one of those things that maybe you don't necessarily want to know what it is before you eat it, <laughs> right? Yes, 100%. very much so. And is that something that uh, that is that you can get regularly? I mean, is that you can go out and maybe to a store like Jackie's and get? Yeah, actually, my store does sell it. We sell barbacoa, menudo, um, slow cooked pork, which we call carnitas. Mm-hmm. Um, tamales, we've got tamales all weekend long. Um, and it's, it's, it's something that we, we don't really describe. We kind of just, Hey, you want to try this? And they're always, you know, customers are always like, yeah, sure. And, and then after the fact is when you tell them, Oh, Hey, by the way, you know, that's, <laughs> that's cow cheek. And they're like, what? That's so good. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I've, I've, I've done some interviews with with some folks. I, I had a conversation with um, uh, two restaurateurs on an episode in early, early on as we were doing the show from Columbus, actually, and it was a Peruvian and a Somali individual, and they they had a a, uh, a restaurant together, and they sold both this, this the Peruvian roasted chicken and and all of that, and then camel. And, 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 you know, and somehow camel became very popular, but I don't necessarily know how much people were realizing that camel was, you know, part, part of, was, was part of the deal, right? So you, you get, you get them in the door and then, and then, uh, people are maybe a little bit more willing to take some, you know, um, take some chances with things that they're unfamiliar with. That's just wonderful though. Again, like, you know, you're introducing, people that did not grow up with these kind of dishes like Johnny um, to something totally different. And in the process, you know, learning about a different culture, which brings me and Johnny, I want to ask you about this. Um, this is something that I know we talked about when, when we had initially had a conversation and um, there's a, a festival in Holland, Michigan every year. Right. And, and that brings out uh, the community, but also celebrates the Latino, uh, you know, culture and heritage. Right. Yeah, so actually the organization that I'm a part of um, puts on a fiesta every year. And um, we, um, you know, due to COVID, has, have not been able to have that the last two years. Um, so we're really excited to be bringing this back um, this year, uh, July 9th, 2022. And it's going to be uh, back in the heart of the neighborhoods, right in the city, uh, mm-hmm. downtown at the Holland Civic Center. Um, but yeah, we, we have food trucks. Uh, Mi Favorita will be there. Um, we also have uh, other other food trucks, other vendors uh, that will be selling, you know, tacos, um, uh, mini cakes, um, f- fruta with, with tahin and, and chamoy. And so just different fruit uh, fruit vendors and and uh, the, the food of the Latino cultures. Uh, and then we will have music. Um, and it was important to us that we had a, a wide variety of music and not just one one uh, nationality represented sure. in terms of Latinos. So we have uh, just different bands. Uh, we have some um, dancers as well uh, that are mm. just putting on the, the uh, Ballet Flocorico. Um, so... Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the event that Laup holds every year, right, right here in Holland. Wow! Um, I, and again, I just I, I'm glad that, and, and I'm not surprised, but it's wonderful to hear how inclusive uh, the programming uh, sounds like it's going to be. How many people come out for something like that? Yeah, historically, I think the you know Laup's been around since the 1960s, um, and when I was growing up here in the 90s. At, at one point, we had 20,000 people um, attend. My goodness. Um, yeah. So there's been some transition and change and um, not not quite as many. I think we're, we're hoping at around 5,000. Um, but again, the goal is to continue to grow it. And um, sure. me leading the organization, I started just back in, in October of 2021. And that's definitely the vision for, for Fiesta in the future. And to your point, being, being inclusive to all Latino communities, so we, they feel like they're a part of it, that La Up is for them, but also, uh, you know, non-Latinos, uh, which yep. were, we have a farmer's market uh, going on right before our fiesta, and that was strategic to include the other other communities that are, that are around to uh, partake into the fiesta. Well, I always say, you know, food is that, you know, this is a, this is a show about food and food is that gateway into learning about other cultures and getting that exposure to other cultures. And, you know, one of the things that inspired me to, to put the show together was growing up and going to all these different festivals in my area of, you know, Croatian and Greek and, you know, there are all these different, uh, you know, communities and, and immigrant cultures that have been here like you for generations, but it's, you go for the food. And then all of a sudden you see the dance, you see the music, you see the, you know, the cultural exhibitions that, that are part of it as well. Um, and, and then you end up, you know, learning uh, about your neighbors in a way that, you maybe wouldn't have otherwise had an opportunity, and it's because the food got you there. Um, I, I I'm really uh, looking forward to hearing how um, the festival grows um, and how uh, Mi Favorita grows as well as a business. Before I let both of you go, um, I want to just ask each of you: Is there anything that you want our listeners to know 
about the community in Holland, Michigan that, you know, maybe we didn't cover. You know, we have, you know, if there's anything you wanted to say to somebody that might want to come visit um, Holland, Michigan, and, and also enjoy, um, you know, what the Latino community has built there, um, what, what would you want to, to tell them? Johnny, I'll start with you. Oh, yeah. Um, that, that Latinos are here. Um, you know, I definitely, we, it's very important for me and our organization to, to let it be known that we are integrated into this community. We are part of the fabric of this community and also help build this community. Um, so, um, that, that aquí estamos is something that we talk about a lot. And so we, we, uh, want to be heard. We want to be acknowledged and supported and, um, you know, for people that are listening to that, that's something that Laup and, and our mission is, but also um, that it's a it's a great place to be, West Michigan. We're right on Lake Michigan, um, and there's a great deal of diversity right here in our city, not only Latinos, uh, but uh, the food is getting diverse, and, and Grand Rapids is not far away, and that's an even mm-hmm. more, more populated, more diverse city as well. So uh, it's a great place to be. Fantastic. Jackie, what, what, what would you like our audience to know? Yeah, I, I, I agree with Johnny. Um, you know, estamos aquí and, you know, we've got a lot of awesome things to, to come and check out. You know, uh, we've got the lakes, we've got sand dunes, we've got, you know, even here in Holland, Michigan, there's tons to see, even walking, even walking distance. You know, Mi Favorita is actually right down the road from the college, uh, from Hope College campus. And then right on the other side of that is downtown Holland, which is, you know, tons of shops, tons of snacks, um, even more different types of food to try. Um, even even really close, you know, I know that Heinz and Collins Park is right next to each other. And you can, you know, just being right there, you can you can feel, you know, the history, you know, and the and the goodness of that Holland brings, you know. And, in the, and if you come in the summertime, you get even bonus because you can do a whole bunch of you picks and, you know, you get to try all the great fruit and, veggie, and veggies that, we, you know, that Michigan has oh, to yeah. offer, which is really cool. We have a lot to do. I, I'm not going to lie. I, I do love Holland and Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I that you've definitely presented a, a really rich picture that I think everyone wishes and hopes they can taste one of these days. Um, Jackie and Johnny, thank you both again for taking the time out to, to be with us here on Eat Your Heartland Out. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.